Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Now, my first car was called the Blue Swede. I did about 250,000 miles in that uh, 240 GLE station wagon. And then my second car was a Silver Bullet. That was a sedan, also a 240. My third car was a 740. We called it the Red Crash because all four of my brothers crashed it. And we still have that car to this day. Um, So a lot of Volvos growing up. And that's why I'm so excited to talk to Andres Gustafsson right now. He's the head of the Volvo Americas region, the president and CEO also of Volvo Cars USA. Anders, thanks so much for joining us. You're here, I guess, primarily to talk about your new parental leave program, um, which is unique for an American company. You're going to give 24 weeks of leave to, is this to either parent who works at Volvo? Yes. First of all, I'd like to thank you very much for your great introduction. So I'm happy <laughs> that you're, you're, you're a loyal owner of a Volvo. Yes, the answer to your question is 24 weeks, uh, and it's for, for everyone. It's uh, gender neutral. It's uh, same-sex, adoptive, permanent care foster and surrogate parents, and it's for every Volvo employee, both from our plants and manufacturing colleagues uh, to headquarters. All right, Anders, let's, I'd love to get your thoughts here on, you know, as we have executives on here over the past year, we really want to get a sense of how the pandemic has impacted your business, uh, the end user, the supply chain, the manufacturing. Give us, if you could, a snapshot of how the pandemic has impacted your business over the last 12 months. Oh, I didn't know this was a two-hour interview. But the, short, <laughs> the, short answer, the short answer is that you know, Volvo cars, we're doing very, very, very well. Uh, last year was a record year for us in the U.S. Uh, and this year has been started in a very, very, very good way. I think we are the fastest growing premium manufacturer. Um, so here you have the, at least a result. But of course, it has been tough. And it's, it's still tough. Uh, we invested in a brand new headquarter uh, in the U.S. in the middle of the pandemic. And it was a lot of discussions if this is the right decision. Uh, but for a growing brand, we are supposed to grow 100% the upcoming years, same as we have grown the last five years. So when you work with growth, it's easier to handle a, a pandemic because we have the momentum in the business and we have the right culture. What about and the chip shortage, Anders? That, that can't help in growth, right? How much does that slow down your production lines? Yeah, once again, we are quite lucky. I'm Swedish, a little bit humble there. Uh, we uh, have had production issues the last two weeks, but before that, we were quite uh, out of that uh, worst scenario. We see it starts to influence our our uh, our business in Charleston, where we right now we have a stop of the operation, and also at some plants in China. But in Europe, uh, the two plants are doing quite well, uh, and we run the operation based on week. Per week, but right now it looks good this week and also next week. Anders, talk about your growth. It's just extraordinary growth numbers you were just discussing. Is that are you taking share from competing brands, and if so, whom? Uh, I love them all, uh, and I think we fish everywhere right now. I think based on a pandemic, people are more uh, kind of a concern about their safety, and as you know, um, safety is, is one of our strongest. 
brand promises. So I think that has really helped us to attract customers from our German competitors, but also from American competitors. So uh, I would say uh, we fish everywhere uh, based on our values of, of safety and focus on sustainability. So I tweeted out a picture of the Polestar 1. I think it is one of the most beautiful sedans that you can buy today. Paul, you know on a uh, Ferrari how they have the see-through deck lid? Yeah. You can, you can view the 12-cylinder engine through that. <laughs> in the Polestar, they have a window in the back in the trunk that shows you all the electrical connections. Cool. It's just so cool. I mean, Anders, this is an engineer's dream because it's not just the batteries in the back. You've got the two-liter T8 engine in the front, which has both a turbocharger and a supercharger. Um, it just gets me pumped. Uh, and you're only making 1,500, 1,500 of those, right? What is the Polestar brand going to do for you? The Polestar brand is, you know, I'm, res I'm responsible for Volvo cars. The Polestar is owned by Volvo, uh, 50%. So it's a unique brand here in the U.S. But it's really our performance uh, electric company, our brand we have in, in uh, the global portfolio. And I totally agree with what you said. It's a beautiful car. Uh, right now my wife is enjoying the P1, and I'm <laughs> always nervous because she's beautiful, but they stop her everywhere. Um, so it is a beautiful car, and it's uh, really our, our start and our segue into electrification for the whole corporation. All right, Anders, that's kind of where I wanted to go. We've seen a lot of the traditional automakers in the past, I don't know, call it six months, really ramp up the rhetoric and uh, about their ambitions in the EV market, um, and we've seen it reflected in their stock prices. What is the strategy of Volvo as it relates to electric vehicles? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we launched our strategy, and it's divided into two important years. So 2025, 50% of our volume is going to be related to full BEVs, full electrified cars. And 2030, we are going to produce 100% BEVs in our portfolio. And that is a big statement, and that is what we work with. Wait, did we lose him? Uh-oh, I'm not sure if we lost Anders. I think we lost. I'm here. I'm here. Ah, ah, okay. Good. Go ahead. Yeah. We, we thought we were scared. We thought you lost you for a second. Um. You know what? Let me just pop in a question that I'm not sure if this uh if this affects you in the U.S. But here in Germany, we have a pretty cool, or Volvo has a pretty cool um subscription program. You can just basically like you would with a phone, um, uh, subscribe to Volvo cars for two years, I think it is. And um, do you do that in the U.S. as well? Because I know these subscription programs are getting popular. Yes, we launched it uh, two and a half years ago. So we have, you know, U.S. is not a country, it's a continent. So we have Kerber Volvo offering 43 states. Uh, and it's growing every month, uh, even if we Maybe we shouldn't talk about numbers, but March uh, in U.S. is going to be the best month since we launched Keba Volvo in U.S. All right. Very cool. Uh, I, I just think it's such you guys are always doing things different. You know, like, I don't mean to steal the Apple 
uh, slogan, but it's just like the design obviously is very Swedish, but I, I love the XC40, for example. The S90, I was hoping, would bring people back to sedans out of the SUVs, um, and the Polestar is just right. incredible as well. So Anders Gustafsson, uh, CEO of Volvo Cars America, uh, Volvo Americas as well, head of Volvo Americas as well. He's going to join me on Bloomberg Television, by the way, in about an hour and a half, so you can tune in there if you like. From me and Paul, this is Bloomberg. Well, this next guest I have known for many years, David Field. He's the chairman, president, and chief executive officer of Odyssey. I know David as a chairman, president, and CEO of Entercom Communications, but they are rebranding the company Odyssey. They're based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and in the interest of transparency, we should note that Bloomberg Radio in Washington, D.C. is a local marketing agreement partner of Entercom rebranded today as Odyssey. Bloomberg Radios also provides business programming to Odyssey's 45 markets nationwide on more than 100 of its radio stations. David, thanks so much for being with us. It's been good to chat. It's been a long time since you and I have chatted. Talk to us about rebranding Entercom, which is a name everybody in the radio industry knows, to Odyssey. What's, uh, what's the significant change? Sure. Well, first, Paul, great to hear your voice and to, and to connect. Um, yeah, look, it's been um, – if you, if you look at how the audio space is playing out today, um, audio is experiencing a, a huge renaissance. And over the last few years, last three years to be specific, we have transformed our company um, to not just build uh, one of the two largest uh, radio broadcasting groups, but also have taken leadership positions in podcasting, digital uh, network radio, live events, sports news, etc., and uh, the name Entercom just does not. Uh, we've outgrown it, and uh, we felt it was time for a rebrand that would also enable us to take our Radio.com B2B pl- B2C platform and marry it to our B2B platform and create a more holistic, compelling um, uh, brand image. So one thing. Uh... Radio listeners can't see. This isn't like James Joyce Odyssey. This is A-U-D-A-C-Y, which then makes more sense. It's audible. Why has radio... I mean, I'm a huge fan. Not just... I don't just work in radio. I listen to radio like most of the day. Why have radio and podcasts and audible books experienced this renaissance? What's driving it? Well, audio has emerged as the number one... Uh, Radio has emerged as the number one reach medium in the country, and um, our company and your company and so many others have such a great depth of incredibly compelling personalities. Um, And we see that having exploded now across podcasting, which, of course, has just added a greater dimension uh, um, to audio. And uh, there's no medium that connects connects more viscerally and engages people more deeply than than great audio. And because of technology and innovation, we're now seeing more great audio available to the public than ever before. And that's really exciting. Hey, David, I know at Entercom, historically, you guys have really had some of the leading sports radio stations around the country. I think it's something like a WEEI uh, in Boston as a real leader. And, you know, when you listen to sports radio, sports betting is everywhere. It seems like more and more states are legalizing sports betting. What's that done to your business? So 
to your point, we have most of the leading sports uh, radio stations in the country, like WFAN in New York, The Score in Chicago, WIP in Philadelphia, and so forth. And we have um, uh, announced major a major partnership with FanDuel this fall, um, which we believe is the largest uh, radio advertising deal in the history of the business. And then since then, we've announced deals with both uh, Rush Street Interactive and today uh, with BetMGM. Um, we see that market exploding uh, and going from uh, going about 50% this year uh, to about $30 million in revenue and think that our sports betting revenues uh, triple here over the next few years as more and more states legalized uh, mobile sports betting. It definitely has to pick up to match the sports betting markets we see in other countries. I mean, in England, you've got, you know, five-year-old kids on the street are already doing spread betting. So <laughs> it's it's something that I think Americans will cotton to pretty well. I want to ask about podcasts. Uh, why have podcasts become so popular? And, and, and how do you think the distribution of those is going to change? Because right now it's still a, bit, a little bit clunky. Well, one of the things we announced today is that we are um, – for the first time, going to start um, presenting exclusive uh, windows um, for some of our content. And we entered the space two years ago with the acquisitions of, of two of the strongest podcast companies in the country, C13 and Pineapple Street Studios. Um, we have partnerships with many of the country's you know, leading podcasters, and we also generate an, a number of original series, many of which have been critically acclaimed and won awards. Uh, and that has made us one of the three largest podcast publishers in the country. Um, we're just really excited about the the growth rates within the industry. And you see more and more uh, people consuming large amounts of, uh, of podcasting. And I think that you're going to see uh, revenues continuing to expand as more and more brands now are embracing uh, podcasting and recognizing the power of it. Uh, last point I make on that is we also just acquired a company called Podcorn, which is the number one podcast influencer marketplace in the country. They have uh, over 40,000 podcast creators on their platform and provide the best way for brands to um, establish native uh, advertising on targeted podcasts that reach their target audiences. And we think that is an incredibly exciting um, development um, for the future of uh, ad growth in, on, on the podcasting platform. Dave, talk to us about your core radio business, uh, the outlook there for advertising as you compete with you know, all these new media that are out there uh, for ad dollars. Sure. It's, it's, People forget that radio today is the number one reach medium in America, and about 93% of Americans listen each week, which speaks to the resilience of the medium from a listening standpoint. From an advertising standpoint, um, we've seen national revenues recovering at a very rapid clip um, towards, you know, back to where we were in 2019, and local, um, we continue to suffer from the number of uh, local advertisers who are uh, essentially hibernating um, through the obvious um, extraordinary difficulties of the uh, pandemic. And so about 40% of our local advertisers uh, as of December were still not advertising. And some of that is attrition, but a large percentage of that are just advertisers who are um, waiting to get back. And so we yep. expect there to be a significant recovery here um, as we see a, a, some degree of normalization in the months ahead. 
Hey, David, I want to ask you just quickly here, what are you going to do with your AM stations? I noticed that you've, uh, you know, uh, transitioned some of them to digital or FM, like WFAN is now, you know, 101.9. What do you plan on doing with some of your uh, AM stations? Well, Paul, it's, it's um, the fact remains that we still have, uh, on our company and across the industry, a number of really robust AM brands. And as long as you're creating outstanding content, um, like Bloomberg Radio, uh, people will seek it out. And so certainly FM radio is, uh, uh, is, ac- is accessed by a greater share of the public. Um, AM still does really well if you have a strongly branded radio station that is a destination for, for listeners. All right, Dave, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure having you on and a really fascinating conversation. Dave Field, Chairman, uh, President and CEO of Entercom, now Odyssey, the ticker after the name change is A-U-D. Now I want to get over to Bloomberg senior reporter Sri Natarajan, who has been leading the coverage of the uh, block stock bonanza here, the um, Archegos failure and um, the drops in the stocks that Archegos had exposure to has been amazing. The banks all around it have had to come out and say whether they had billions of dollars worth of exposure, like Credit Suisse or Wells Fargo just coming across the ticker now saying it uh, has no losses to report from closing its Archegos exposure. Sri, how much more do you think we have to go in terms of unwinding these uh, uh, these trades? Matt, the problem really is that no one has a good central database on this situation. We're talking to all the prime brokers out there. We're talking to everyone else who's involved in the situation. And they may know what is happening at their own institution, but they really don't have good visibility of what's happening elsewhere. Which is why when we saw that big uh, block trade mania on Friday where the estimates were anywhere between 20 billion to 30 billion, perhaps a little more. Even then, uh, senior banking executives were cautioning us that you could still see quite a lot more out there. Morgan Stanley then came out Sunday night shopping a $2 billion Viacom block, and you saw a bunch of trading from Wells Fargo yesterday. Now, uh, as you just mentioned, Wells Fargo is out there saying we had a prime brokerage relationship with Archegos, but we were well collateralized at all times, and we will not, we don't have any more exposure. And we did not experience any loss. That's not the case for MUFG, which overnight uh, Tuesday morning in uh, Japan uh, told us that they had a few hundred million dollars in losses. Nomura that has already said that it has a $2 billion claim against a big client, which we believe, again, to be tied to the Bill Huang situation. And most importantly, the big name Credit Suisse, where the most the latest reporting suggests that they are living for losses that could be a few billion dollars, and that is mighty significant. Shri, I love the piece you and your partner Donald Griffin put out uh, uh, earlier today, really taking us behind the scenes of what was going on with some of these investment banks. And I guess last week they were trying to get together at the last second and, and try to do this in a more orderly fashion. What happened to that? Well, one interesting observation from that, Paul, definitely is uh, you do not want to be the person in the room that says, 
guys, let's all hang tight and show some unity because everyone else will smell blood in the water. Our understanding is alarms are already blaring at a lot of these firms, which saw some of the big positions that Bill Hong's firm had uh, start to tank, and they were worried about breaching margin limits and how they make sure that they do not lose much in that situation. When all these banks convene on a call, we believe it might have been sometime on Thursday, uh, Credit Suisse was actually pushing for a standstill agreement. It was saying, let cooler heads prevail, let the markets play out for a couple of days, let's reassess the situation when markets open next week. But it was quite clear that there was a reasonable amount of bickering on that call. No one really reached any sort of agreement on what to do. And, you know, a few hours after that, banks were already shooting off notices of default. Uh, massive finger pointing had started. Uh, some folks blamed Credit Suisse, others blamed Goldman Sachs, others blamed Morgan Stanley. But what we do know was they all broke ranks and it was everyone for themselves by the time uh, we were into Friday. Wow, just just an extraordinary story. Uh, we really appreciate you taking us there. Sri Natarajan, senior finance reporter for a Bloomberg. U.S. consumer confidence rose in March to a one-year high as Americans grew more upbeat about the economy and labor market. Let's dig into those numbers, and we have what a pair we have to do that today. Lynn Franco, Senior Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys at the Conference Board, and Carl Riccadonna, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Lynn, uh, I want to start with you. A big number blowing out where Wall Street saw this number. What's behind it? Well, we've seen that uh, not only has spring sprung, but it seems so has consumers' confidence. And it's really across the board. We've got a much stronger rating on current conditions, both in terms of how consumers see uh, the economy and employment. And looking ahead, they're very confident that we're going to continue to see the economy grow and that, uh, you know, we're going to begin adding jobs. So it's very positive across the board. Carl, this could change on a dime, right? Um, As we see COVID infection spike around the world, um, how confident are you of a comeback? I'm fairly confident, Matt, uh, that we are on a a sustainable track record here, at least as we look at U.S. economic conditions. Uh, Certainly there are uh, uh, kind of uh, signals pointing in the wrong directions if we look at uh, hospitalizations by state and and that sort of thing. But we've had such success getting the vaccine distributed, especially among the most vulnerable uh, uh, aspects of the population, uh, that, uh, you know, I think we can, it, we're certainly in a race against the clock here uh, with uh, you know, the, the variants spreading, but uh, I don't, you know, see a, a reasonable scenario uh, where we're going back to extreme lockdown. So there could be a kind of a delay or a little bit of backsliding, but not a, a severe downturn. So this, this recovery, I think, is very much here to stay. Uh, and, uh, you know, what if you like what you're seeing in Q1, you'll love what you're seeing in Q2 uh, because <laughs> we're going to see just a, a dramatic crescendo. Uh, and nowhere will that be more evident than as we look at the payroll numbers uh, coming up this Friday. The March jobs report uh, is going to be a, a, a real barn burner. Uh, even after February, surprise to the upside, March will be stronger still. And the same thing will uh, c- convey into April and May and June. Carl, just help us put some uh, Bloomberg Economics GDP numbers because these are numbers that we haven't seen in a long time, if ever. Where do you like your Q2, 3, and 4 uh, GDP numbers? Not since you were a young boy. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, we're, we're looking for uh, a recovery that uh, in many ways resembles the economic uh, rebound after the very deep 1981-82 uh, uh, recession. 
which uh, to that point had been the deepest recession since the, the Great Depression. Uh, and so we see lots of parallels, whether it's looking at GDP growth. In fact, uh, you know, we're looking for GDP growth of about 11% in the second quarter, wow. uh, 10% in the quarter after that. That's as all this stimulus money is just dumped onto an economy that's uh, reopening and benefiting from wealth effects from home prices and, and equity uh, appreciation in uh, portfolios. Uh, and also, uh, you know, stimulus funds, the reopening, uh, really a, a uh, a slew of uh, factors, uh, and uh, one that we shouldn't ignore is the mountain of savings that households are sitting on uh, over the course of the past year, which could be about $2 trillion. So as they deploy that into the economy, there's really just multiple engines here uh, providing very uh, strong boost uh, to activity. And so that means for the year as a whole, uh, we're looking for GDP growth of about 7.7%. Uh, the Fed's currently at six and a half. We're kind of at the upper end of the consensus spectrum, but uh, this all depends on the vigor of the reopening. And today's confidence numbers uh, give me added uh, confidence, uh, pun intended, that uh, you know we will see an above consensus outcome. Lynn, what what has driven this? Is it the stimulus checks that are driving this incredible confidence number? It's a variety of factors. I think we've got, you know, fiscal stimulus, which is helping. Uh, We've got the vaccine rollout, which is accelerating. And so that's a great combination both for confidence and for spending. And we expect that, uh, much like Carl said, to continue well into Q2, Q3, and and Q4. So we think really that this recovery is here to stay and it's going to gain strength. And while the variant sort of remained a possible headwind, um, you know, it all depends on how quickly uh, we can uh, roll out the vaccine. All right, Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. Lynn Franco is the director of economic indicators at the conference board. Again, the U.S. consumer confidence number came in at 109.7 and the survey was only for 96.9. So really uh, a big beat, a big beat over the revised previous month's number of 90.4. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.